Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. If you're a fan of bird dogs, this episode is for you. Dr. Dale visits with Ronnie Smith, Jr. He's from a family that many call bird dog training royalty. It's known as the Smith Method of Training, and Ronnie shares his insights. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Gary, we appreciate you and your staff over at Farm Bureau and uh, looking forward to another great podcast today and looking forward to being in the studio with you again one of these days. But today, I'm very fortunate to be on the phone with uh, somebody whose uh, name is going to resonate among the bird dog community. Our guest today is Ronnie Smith. And uh, Ronnie comes from a long bloodline of Smiths, and I'm going to ask him to to explain his lineage here in a minute, uh, but uh, Ronnie, welcome to the Dr. Dale on Crow podcast. Thank you for having me. And I talked with our buddy, mutual buddy, Steve Snell, and because I had you pegged as being over in northeastern Oklahoma and I think in Big Cabin or somewhere around there, but uh, Steve tells me you've moved out to the big city of Pawhuska, Oklahoma, there in Osage County. We have. We moved uh, be four years ago this November. Uh, my wife Suzanne and I bought uh, a place over here and and uh, moved our facility and built a new um, kennel and um, out here in Osage County. And just uh, we're, we're very very happy to be here. Back when I used to work for Oklahoma State, back during the mid '80s, I was a range management specialist for Extension. And uh, Pawhuska was a frequent destination of mine because, as, as you know and can appreciate, that's the last bastion of the large ranches in Oklahoma, uh, some beautiful tall grass prairies, uh, greater prairie chickens, and hopefully there's still some Bob Whites up there as well. So uh, you're in good country, and, I, and I'm sure you appreciate that. Ronnie, why don't you start off by telling us uh, your your history, your uh, elevator speech, your bloodlines, if you if you will, how you got to where you're at. Sure. So, my uh, my I'm a junior. My father was Ronnie Smith Senior, and he and my uncle Delmer Smith were brothers. And um, the uh, the home place was there in Big Cabin, Oklahoma, and that's where those boys grew up and started uh, training bird dogs. And in fact, um, uh, there were a lot of professional trainers that came out of that area. Uh, from the early 1900s, um, uh, you know, the growing up there, you would hear that there were more professional bird dogs trainers came out of, of their per capita than anywhere else in the United States. Now, I don't know if that's valid or not, but that's what I grew up hearing. Um, and listening to all of the old stories and seeing all of the old trial grounds, uh, it was a place um, that was that was steeped in in, in bird dogs and trialing. So, um, again, the Smith boys grew up there training dogs, and then my uncle, Delmer, moved to Edmond, Oklahoma, and um, he, uh, he built a facility there and, uh, and remains there today. He's, he's 95, I believe, maybe coming 96, and 
my father built a place across the road there in Big Heaven from the home place and built a kennel. Um, uh, he started that in 1956, and then in 1982 I took over. And um, at that time, most of of my um, uh, of my people, my father and my cousins Rick and and Tom and my uncle Delmer, had quit field trialing and uh, were going to South Texas during the winters. Um, running corporate and commercial quail hunts. So when I graduated high school, that is just, um, that's where I ended up is going to South Texas and um, running wild bird hunts. Ronnie, we were visiting a little while before the broadcast and you said you'd quit guiding. I want to get into that in here in a minute, but you're still doing your training seminars. Is that correct? Yes, sir, we are. Um, we uh, we finished a foundation seminar this last weekend here at our facility just north of Pahuska, and um, we're still training full-time, so um, our seminar schedule is limited. Um, my cousin Rick is has, uh, has said that he's about, he's thinking about slowing down, so if he does, then um, I'll have to take some of that on and and the seminar schedule will pick up for us. I'm curious, between you and Rick, in your seminars, your workshops, how many dogs do y'all lay hands on in a typical year? You know, it, it really depends. Uh, I think it depends a lot on, on the economy and COVID and, and what the, the, the forecast for the bird populations are going to be. For whatever reason, this uh, the last couple of years have been uh, have been real, real good. Um, we're we're drawing more people uh, than what we typically do. So I think people are excited to be outside and do things with their dogs and um, and looking forward to hunting season. Now you said you just completed a foundation seminar. Explain to me is that the the groundwork of dog training, or, or what context do you put the word foundation in? Right. So our training format is a three-pronged approach, and the uh, each each um, uh, prong of that that format uh, we designate 30 days for. So the the first um, uh, part of that training is what we call the foundation, and really it's a, a two-part workout. Um, one part of that is um, we're we're building a foundation. We're uh, used to call it yard work, um, but it's really two points of contact that we're building on this dog, getting conditional responses so we can um, we can stop a dog. You know, a dog only has to do three things. Honestly, they they have to stand still, still. They have to come to you, and they have to go with you. So um, that that really simplifies the whole process. Although there's a a lot of fine tuning that we do on everything, but it is the hub of our training format. Um, without that foundation, it's, it would be impossible to build from that. I had a colleague, a county agent over in Mills County, Gulfway, Texas. Danny Long was his name. And one day I had a quail workshop and I asked Danny, who had much better trained bird dogs than what I had, asked him if he'd just give a little trimmer on training bird dog and, and his bottom line was this and i quote if a dog will woe he is a good dog end quote so he t- he thought the woe <laughs> command was not as much as he got um right. if i ask you ronnie to make a distinction between 
dog training and bird dog training. Are those synonymous or are there some subtleties there that, that you focus more on the former or the latter with those two? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great question. You know, I think, <clears throat> I think there are some similarities. Um, I think depending on what it is, the, 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 the end product, what it is that you want to do with that dog is where there might be some separation. For example, the, you know, the, the Labradors, um, they're, they're a little more mechanical, um, than our bird dogs are, you know, you're, they need them to run a straight line and stay on that line. And, um, those dogs really need to be able to take direction and take it well. And, and a bird dog is, is much like when you graduate college, you, you say, okay, now you, you know, everything you're supposed to know and turn them loose and give them their head. And, and, um, and with the training, you have the ability to enforce behavior on the go. But, uh, but basically, we try to get off of them and let them be this, this, uh, this domesticated predator as much as best we can. I think that's a good way of putting it. And, and let me confess, profess, at this point in time, podcast, I'm not a dog trainer. I have bird dogs, and they're decent bird dogs, better than I deserve. But I profess to know really nothing about bird dogs. My strategy is basically let them mentor under their mother and uh, I feel like they teach them more than I could possibly teach them and give them plenty of opportunities to express their innate potential. So that's my on the background in dog training. But uh, and you mentioned labs while ago. Ronnie, do y'all train all kinds of dogs, just pointing dogs or, or give us a sample or platter of the of the dogs you got on hand? Sure. We, um, for, for probably 30 years, we trained pointy and flushing dogs. Um, we quit training the flushing dogs, uh, uh, quite a while ago. Um, we're just working on the pointing breeds and right now we have a very diverse kennel. We have, we have pointers and we have several varieties of setters and, and several varieties of, of Britneys and, um, uh, Poodle pointers and draught hires and wire hairs and short hairs and um, you name it. Some dogs that I'm struggle to pronounce. Um, we we have a lot of we train all of the pointing breeds basically. And how many dogs do you have on hand in your kennels? Are we talking about twenty dogs or 120 dogs or how many? Right. So. Um, counting our dogs, uh, the dogs that my wife and I own and client dogs, um, we have 52 dogs. Um, we have cut our training classes down to 30 and, um, I, I aspire to, to cut that back even more. Um, we'll see if this economy will allow that. Okay. The first time I remember meeting you, I, I want to say it was about 2009. You came to the Rolling Plains Quill Research Ranch uh, in the company of Steve Snell and Ted Gardner, and we had we still had quite a few quail that year and had a chance to. I don't think you hunted. You you had the dogs or whatever, and Steve and uh, Steve and Ted were both shooting. And a shout out to both those guys. I always enjoy being around them. Uh, but I guess that, that brings the question: uh, Do you hunt, Ronnie, or are you always watching the dog kind of thing? I mean. Do you carry a gun or not? No, I, I I don't carry a gun. I am a, you know, I've spent uh, I spent 42 years um, guiding hunts, and uh, I never did carry a gun. It 
I took all that I had to um, to make sure that it was a safe environment that my dogs made the uh, as few as infractions as 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 I could manage, and um, you know to really put on a quality hunt. And then when we're we're here training um, uh, client dogs, I always try to find somebody to shoot for me because uh, I we we really need to be focused on the dog. Um, so it, it just works better to have someone else shoot. I can appreciate that. And you mentioned that you're not guiding anymore. So tell us, uh, you said you guided for 42 years. Is this the first year to be in a non-guiding situation? or, or And maybe what brought that about? Was that economy? Yeah. It, no, it is. It is this, uh, this last fall uh, of 21 was the first year since 1979 that uh, I was not guiding hunts in Texas. And, um, you know, what brought it on is, is, uh, oh, I, you know, I'm, I turned 60 years old in, in April and, uh, I'm, I'm not what I, what I once was. And I know that I'm not old, but, uh, I have walked a million and five miles in that, in those decades. And, and, uh, my body is, is, is not what it once was. Um, Ms. Marion uh, of the Four Sixes Ranch passed away, and um, we guided hunts there for, uh, uh, I was there for about 20 years, and my cousin was there for, I think, shoot, 17 years before me. So when she passed away, um, that went a different direction, and, and, um, and it, 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 it allowed me to make some, some decisions in life that I had been wanting to make for quite some time. You know, I... Doc, I had, um, uh, that was a, that was a good run for a long time. Um, I, I walked in front of the truck. I seldom rode it, um, and, uh, really enjoyed being down there, enjoyed, uh, all of the birds. I'm, I'm fortunate that I have seen, um, really great birds in my life. I met some really wonderful people, uh, had the pleasure to, to walk behind some, some world-class bird dogs, but, um, the heat, heat was, heat bothers me. I don't do well in the heat anymore. And, uh, just, uh, it's time to do something different. Well, we certainly wish you the best in that. And I know, and that was the only opportunity I ever had to, to walk with you, but I enjoyed that situation immensely. And I think you've got some proteges out there like Steve Snell, who. Uh, as you know, Steve uh, has been on a real health kick here for the last year, and he shed about, I don't know, 30, 40 pounds. He's a lean, lean walking machine. I'm going to have to really go to get in shape for us by him. Ronnie, yeah, I, tell you. I, don't, really want, I don't, don't really want to dwell on field trialing, which is, again, something I really have no knowledge about. But asking you more about hunting dogs, if, if I can make a distinction between field trialing. But you, I think you said you kind of got out of the field trotting business a good while ago, your family did. Uh, was that uh, caused by lack of opportunities or, or, or just what might have brought about that change? Yeah, I think it's because of, of opportunities. You know, in the, in the late 70s, the King Ranch um, had opened it up uh, to, to lease. So a lot of corporations started leasing, um, you know, the Encino and, and Norris and Santa Petrus division of Allen, uh, of, of the King Ranch. Um, and, uh, um, 
So they were looking for people, for bird dog people to come down there and, and run the dogs. And my uncle Dilmer was contacted and he and, and, uh, and my father and both of my cousins, uh, and, and a number of other people. And I was fortunate to be a part of that. Um, just went that direction. Uh, it was an opportunity to, um, uh, honestly to make, to make some money. Um, field trialing is a, uh, it's like rodeoing. It's a, it's a hard, hard road. hoe. it's, you go up and down the road and you're wearing out equipment and, and you've got to drag horses and dogs and everybody else is there trying to make a living too. And, um, it's uh this was just a new direction for us that, uh, just at the right, right place at the right time. Well, again, wish you the best in your newest endeavors, and uh, please tell Miss Suzanne I said hello. I, I remember meeting you and Suzanne at some workshop I did at some point in time in the past, but I confess I don't remember when or where, but I, I do remember meeting you all at the time you did the thing in Big Cabin, so please give my regards to her. Uh, Ronnie, I know there's different styles and methods of training dogs. It's kind of like pasture rotations. There's all kinds of names associated with a certain way of rotating the cattle among the pastures. So maybe share with us, uh, with our listeners, and thinking that they're probably as naive as I am, what are two or three of the professed methods, and, and which one do you you tend to use? Well, we use our own method. It's called the Smith method of, of training. And, and you know, it uh, really what it is, is, is it's a very structured step system of training. Everything that we do is for a reason. Um, we work in a very controlled environment initially so that we can um, make happen what we want to happen exactly when we want it to happen to get proper association. Um, uh, it, uh, we're, we're real big on teaching first what it is that we want the dog to know and then naming that discipline later. For example, um, in that foundation level of training, um, we can have dogs stopping and standing still with the mechanical cue of the rope. We can have dogs coming to us with the cue of a rope. We can have dogs quartering and walking beside us loose loose lead with a rope uh, for healing. And uh, that's all just real basic fundamentals. The healing is the onset to the quartering and the quartering is the onset to turning loose in the field. Um, and the standing still obviously is for a woe, which we can use to steady a dog up on their game and um, uh, teach a dog to honor another dog's point. So um, uh, again, points of contact on the neck are for the movement commands for roll here and heel, and then a separate point of contact on the flank to just have a dog stand still for um, uh, roll here and heel. What was I thinking? The neck is 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 quartering here and heel, and the flank is for woe or honoring and, and steadying up. Um, and and then from there we can go to the remote cue of the electronic training collar. And, uh, and at that time, we then name, name those functions that we have taught this dog to do. You know, whoa, standing still, here's coming to us. And, and then whatever bird um, vocabulary, pretty extensive um, around game. But uh, with, that, with that remote cue, with those dogs responding without any indecision or confusion, 
um, you can in real time make those corrections at range in, in any situation um, and, and get 100% compliance because um, all of those things were taught away from game. So when you make those corrections, they have nothing to do with game. And um, you can really bring a, a first-year dog, a young dog together, uh, providing you you have enough game. Uh, and, and, you know, a year-and-a-half-old dog have – have something that acts like he's three or four years old in the field. And when you say you can do that from a hundred yards away, but you said that before you've introduced the e-collar or, or no, that the, the e-collar is this. Yeah. The, no, the e-collar is the second part of that. We, we, uh, um, we teach all of those commands first in, in a, in a very controlled environment and then with the use of, of ropes. And once we have that, that, that behavior instilled, we can then go to the, the, the training collar, the e-collar. And, and it's, it, it's just like an imaginary rope. It's a, it's a long rope, still utilizing those points of contact that we established with the rope, but now it's with a remote cue. So, for example, you can have a dog that um, – that uh, maybe he's made an infraction on game and you can push a button and never say a word and he'll stop. Um, and then you can walk up there and flush around. And if you're in a training scenario, throw some flyers um, and uh, w whatever it is you feel you need to do. Um, so it, uh, uh, again, it's very, very structured. Um, when we start a dog, we know where we're going to end up. Ronnie, at what age? If I said I want, I had a, if I, I wanted a good bird dog and I had one and sent it to you, what age would you want to receive that dog? Yeah, Doc, the file answer is a year of age, but that's everyone wants a number and that's all that is, is, is just a number. The truth is, um, uh, I think, you know, there are, there are some, some breed specific dogs that, that, um, have longer attention spans quicker. Uh, I hate to say mature sooner, but, but we can, we can say that, you know, I think a lot of the English pointers and the, uh, and the short hairs and a lot of the German stuff, um, you can start pretty young, uh, as long as you have two ingredients. First ingredient is that you want a dog that's well socialized. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean a dog that lives in your home. It, it means a dog that, um, can mitigate stressors well. You know, we all encounter things in life that um, maybe set us back on our heels or stand us up a little bit. But but if you can if you can refill or bounce back from that quickly, uh, uh, from from mitigate that stress, then you'll come in and you move forward. And it's the same with the dog. So we want a dog that uh, that, that can mitigate those stressors well. Um, because there is stress involved with training, um, accountability. And we want a dog that has a, a, a high prey drive because the, the prey drive, the desire for gain, um, is what's going to sustain that dog through the training process. Uh, an example analogy that I use a lot is you can give a, a, a child a basketball for Christmas, and if you go out with him as soon as he um, opens that gift and you start trying to coach him, uh, he can become frustrated, um, confused, 
um, and quit. But if you let that child dribble and shoot, dribble a basketball and shoot hoops until he, he develops or builds a passion for the game, he is now more malleable. He's now coachable. And, and that's the same concept we have uh, with our bird dogs. Um, we, we want a dog that, that his, his focus and intent on game is to a level that he allows us to put rules to the field. That's an interesting metaphor of the basketball. I've spent the last two evenings watching YouTube videos of Pistol Pete Maravich, and uh, <laughs> he would have been, he would have been an All American, I think, in anybody's kennel. But he ended up all from very early age. Um, Ronnie, share with us. You mentioned some of the commands a while ago that that you wanted in this first level of training. How many commands are we talking about? I'm assuming woes one of them, appeal. What are your top three or four or five commands that you think are must haves? Sure. So, um, well, obviously here um, and, and heal, and I'll elaborate on heal a little bit a little bit later, and then um, two. Uh, uh, we use um, birds. I'll talk birds to a dog, and, and to get proper association, you need to be sure that that when you go to talking that 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 birds to him that that he encounters birds so that it makes sense to him but to me birds mean drop a gear slow down a little bit and uh let's be a little more methodical in this this area um and and to another uh another thing that we do to help those dogs is um we teach dog to go with us um i don't i don't handle we don't handle dogs um like like maybe I did a long time ago, you know, where I, I come from a field trial family and we wing holler and blow whistles with the best of them. And, and I enjoyed that, but running wild bird hunts, you, you learn pretty quickly that, uh, that, uh, that degrades your shoot. Um, so had to learn to be quiet and, and that's where the silent command system came from. So we teach those dogs to, um, to, to pay attention, um, not all the time, but but to reference us, and, or if we call on them to pick their head up and reference us, and come and go our direction. Don't don't come back to me, but come and go my direction. Join up with me and and hunt with me. Um, so um, so when we stand still, um, we we teach those dogs to stay in the vicinity, um, and then we'll talk birds to them and make sure that they find birds. And that's a situation where. Maybe you've got singles marked or you've got an old home place that, that always holds a cubby or, or whatever, whatever it is. And then another command would be dead. And, um, I use dead differently than I did back in the, in the eighties. Um, that was a function where you just said dead and the dog was to go out and search and find a dead bird and bring it back to you. Um, I, that, that evolved for me, um, uh, probably because of the poor sending conditions that we would run into in, in South Texas because of the heat, um, where it was like if you shot a bird and I went over to where that bird went down and you said, right there, Ronnie, it's right there. Well, now I have a, I have a point of reference and I can throw a hat down and I can start from there. So that's, that's what we teach our, our bird dogs too whenever we're throwing um, retrieves for them initially um, and they come in downwind just about the time I think they're going to catch scent. Um, I'll say did 
did, and and then if they catch that, then uh, after a while it starts to mean something to them. And what you'll see is they'll drop another gear, they'll put it in compound, and uh, really hunt this spot. And if you can just get that dog to where that bird, that the spot where that bird fell. Then if you've got a running bird, uh, you have a, a better chance of, uh, of getting, getting it uh, picked up. I used to brag on one of my dogs, my prototype better, Richie Setter Crosses, and then I get her six most of it. Yeah, I'm okay with that. But uh, little Annie was my best dead bird dog I ever saw, and I tell people that that's the reason you feed a bird dog. A lot of bird dogs can point and find them, but one that is really superstar at finding a lost bird is just I'd always pat her on the head when she brought that bird back to me and say, I'm gonna miss you someday, baby. And that someday happened in two thousand thirteen. So that bird dog is is a great asset. Ronnie, um what, what would you say are, are some of the common mistakes? I let, let me rephrase that. If you take on a dog to train, would you rather have one that somebody's quote unquote jacked with, worked with or six months to a year, or would you rather have the first shot at it? Yeah, great question. And and I don't know that I can definitively answer it. I can maybe give some some things to think about. You know, so it, when a dog comes to us for training, um, we we have some questions that we ask, and one of those questions, questions are, um, has this dog ever had uh, an e-collar on him, electronic collar? And if the answer is yes, um, I don't, I don't have to ask anymore. I know what it's for. It's for recall. Um, so that that situation, uh, it does not help us in the training because, you know, when you introduce that collar um, for that recall, and it's not taught. It's something that happens at range, and 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 the dog's stimulated, and he's got one of three behaviors. He's going to freeze up, run back to you, or run off. And with the domesticated uh, dogs that we have now that are living in our houses, it, it's about a 95% chance he's going to come back to you. Well, you repeat that three times, and it's a conditional response, and any more than that turns into learned behavior. So when you, you imprint that dog like that, um, when we go through the training process, the first time we put the collar on a dog, he will default to that recall. So we have to work through that. Um, so, and it's not the end of the world for the, those folks out there listening, just thinking, oh, I missed my dog up. No, you didn't. It's okay. Um, but uh, that's that's something that we see that would probably be, be better if we didn't. Um, uh, you know, if I think probably one of the most most important things that a person could do with their dog, well, heck, there's a lot, but if you were to teach a command, um I think work on their on their here uh, and not not with a collar, but just on a rope. That way you can be successful and, and try to nurture that retrieve at a young age. Um, those dogs that are genetically predisposed to be good retrievers are good retrievers when we get them. But it seems that the majority of the dogs that are good natural retrievers are um, dogs that, that that retrieving was was nurtured at a very young age. Um, so I would encourage people to do that. Um, so all of that being said, here, here's the other side. Um, every time you you touch dog or you 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 you, you fiddle with a dog, um, 
you leave a part of yourself with that dog. Uh, if you got his attention, um, you leave fingerprints. So, um, you know, to have, and I even say that about trainers, you know, if you're going to pick a trainer or somebody to go with, you probably ought to stay with that trainer. Um, because if you go to bouncing around, um, those, those dogs that I have been around like that, um, I don't know that they ever reach the top of their game and it's nobody's fault. I just think they're passed around too much. Um, so, and, and then, and then a, a dog is a social animal. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, there's, there's a, there's a social order. He's a pack animal. So within the home, um, we, we need not forget that, that, that this is a dog. Um, and, and understand, understand he is a dog. You know, Doc, I tell people in my seminars, um, <laughs> the first two sentences that I say are, your dog does not love you. All right. So now I've lost all of the women in the seminar. They're out. Um, they don't, they don't care who you are. And then I lose the old hunters and I say, and your dog does not try to please you. So I have lost everyone. But then my third, my third line is, is, but, but a dog can join up with you. And it's a level of relationship that, um, it is hard to be matched anywhere, even with, with man. It, it's a relationship that, that they'll walk through the fire with you. And, and it's not based on words. It's not based on conditional or unconditional love. It, it's based on who you are. You know, this dog is constantly studying you every minute of, of, of every day because he doesn't speak English. So he's, he's watching the, the inflection in your body, the smell that's coming from your body that we're not even aware of, the inflection in your voice, um, how you react to certain things. Um, he knows you better than you know you. And um, by not, not convoluting this relationship with words, um, it, it's a real deep, deep relationship. And I think that's why we're, um, we're so drawn to dogs. You know, a dog is an animal that will leave his own to be with us. That's amazing. That's correct, and, and I often think of, I've given several months ups away, some to former graduate students and so forth, and uh, I'll tell them, I said, I've taught you all I can about growth, but if you'll follow this dog, you're up for a whole new education and what they can teach you if you'll just uh, spend time and feel with them. And that kind of brings me to the point, Ronnie, I kind of feel sorry for either the dog or the trainer. Now, this is a situation where a guy lives in Dallas, but his dogs are kenneled somewhere else, 150 miles away. He picks them up there uh, three or four times during hunting season and takes them out. And I don't know, it just seems like that's a recipe for frustration in many situations. And is that, a, is that because of the, the, the lack of bonding, the, the inability to read the, the owner? Or, or have you ever experienced that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, um, that, that I'll tell you what I've learned, you know, in all of those years that I, that I guided hunts and, and, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, boy, I have seen, I've seen it good. 
uh, my best day was 57 coveys in seven hours. And my worst was zero. And, you know, and I had more zeros than I had the good. But um, in, in all that time, um, in all that time, what I, what I truly learned uh, is that it's all about focus. You know, the training, the training does not make a bird dog. It, it gives you, if you have a good foundation, it gives you enforceable manners in the field. And, and that's what that does. It's, it's the focus of the dog that, that makes that bird finder. Um, you can take a dog off the street, and if he's more focused on, on finding his next meal than your highly trained bird dog that came from Ronnie Smith Kennels, he's going to find more birds than the dog that came from Ronnie Smith Kennels. So those dogs that are um, you know, picked up and, and hunted twice a, uh, a month, um, you know, unless they saw really good birds when they were young, uh, they're going to run by birds and not even know they're there. I see it every day. So just because you go to the field and you don't find anything, I promise you, it does not mean that there are no birds there. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, um, I, I have seen those dogs where I think that if they don't get into good a good amount of birds by their second season, they, they won't ever develop to what they could have been. They'll still be a bird dog and they'll still find birds, but they won't be that dog that could manufacture birds. I totally agree. Sometimes people will find with me and I say, well, how, did you, how long did it take your dogs to get as good as they are? And I said, oh, about a hundred cubbies. And I said, if you can get those in the first 30 days, it's all the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you some specific questions, uh, Ronnie. What do you do with the gunshot dog? Do y'all handle gun shyness? And can you talk briefly about gun shyness and dogs and how to try to get them over that? Yeah, yeah. So what we do is the first question that we ask is, you know, how deep is it? How did you how did you um, handle it? What was your reaction? And how old is that dog? Um, if it's a dog that is, you know, a, a year old, um, then uh, we're probably okay. We can probably turn this around. And the way that we do it is through focus and desensitization. So if we have a dog um, there for 30 days to work on this problem, we'll spend, I'm not kidding, we'll spend 20, 20 plus days just building that desire, letting this dog do whatever he can. We're just trying to build that desire for game to an absolute pinnacle. And then once he's, he's focused uh, on game uh, and intent on finding them, uh, it goes back to the training. You know, if they've got that kind of passion, they allow you to, to um, mold them with, with rules of the field. And it's the same with that, that sound sound shy dog um that um one once they're they're that focused on intent then we'll start to very very lightly shoot and once we start shooting we never quit there's the desensitization so we're getting focused on birds um hopefully he likes to get his mouth on birds because that's that's just the that's the icing on the cake and then when we go to train that dog um we hold those dogs 
steady to wing and release on the gun. And you would think that it would be uh, a better deal to let them break on the shot. But what we have found is if, if you can make that very thing that um, has kind of caused this stress uh, or, or make them to lose focus or to be fearful or have an escape area, if you can take that sound and that's the marker to release to go get their mouth on a bird, uh, boy, it, it's a, it, it, it just it really changes that dog. Now, all of that, we also say that when you go home and you lay this dog up all summer, when you come back out, back out next fall, he's going to have a sound issue again. And the reason is because you've not had him on birds, so he's lost focus, and you've not been shooting around him, so he's lost the desensitization. So we encourage those people at least 30 days before season, um, go to your local preserve, birds first. Once, once he's a bird dog again, then start to shoot lightly. And that doesn't mean you have to kill a bird. He just, he just needs to hear the noise, needs to hear the shot. And then you can go kill a bird dory before you hit the bird field. I've seen uh, several times uh, we'll have a dove shoot, for example, maybe out there at the Square Research Ranch. Somebody will bring along uh, an eight-month-old puppy, and I, I tell them, in, in my opinion, don't get that dog out, put that dog can get that dog away from all the shooting because the, the shooting in a dove field is just, in my opinion, too intense for those initial lessons. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that or not or how, how y'all recommend that. I agree 100%. Even, even I think if you're going to hunt pheasant where you're driving a field, you're pushing the field to the end, um, you can get in a, in a real bind doing that too. Let's talk about, um, you mentioned all the various breeds that you've uh, laid hands on and everything. I'm not going to ask which one's better. I know my setters are better, but uh, <laughs> are, there, are there differences? among the dogs and what do you like or maybe not like as much of course maybe initially between let's say pointer setters and britneys and then getting into some of the more uh, less common what do you like yeah. about what do you, what do you more challenging right so you know um i've got two family members that are in the hall of fame field trial hall of fame and the britney hall of fame and um we've got uh, I, I, we've got it on the wall. I don't know how many there are—a dozen dogs that are in Britneys that are in the Hall of Fame um, that that we either owned or that my my family either owned or trained. And so Britneys are dear to my heart. Uh, um, we we raise a a good Britney, and I think what I like about the Britney is um, they are a, a, a dog that. Uh, um, uh, you, you can do a lot of things with, and it seems to me that, that their training stays in place pretty good, providing you get them at a, at a younger age. Um, they, uh, they stay together pretty good. Um, I, I love, uh, uh, I love a setter. There, there's nothing that looks any better than a setter standing out there high on both ends and those feathers blowing in the wind. Um, it, it just does something for me. I, uh, I, I own the majority. My wife and I own the majority of pointers um and we have some great pointers uh but the reason is because um you know in, in south texas they're on down 
around Hebronville and, and South Furious and Raymondville down way down there. Uh, humidity's always high and and it's always hot. Um, if it's not 86 degrees, it's 93. Um, and you need something that that's kind of got more heart than sense. Something that play hurts. Something will go when it gets hot. Go when it gets tough. And and um, uh, pointers are. I'm a pointer guy. And no doubt about it, Terry Roman foot soldier. I, I tell people after three days of hard hunting, my Saturday's got to have day off. Those those pointers can do it day in and day out. And, and I know that you'll agree that there's good dogs among every breed, and there's those that need some help. Uh, Ronnie, I'm not going to really talk about snake breaking, except uh, I've already done a, a podcast about a year ago. We talked about Allridge there in Sweetwater. He probably treats as many snake good dogs as anybody. But I, I will ask, do y'all do snake breaking? Are you a believer in the e-collar version of snake breaking? And what do you think about that? Yeah, so... Um, I, I do believe in it for some dogs. Uh, I think the, uh, the rattlesnake vaccine for the Western diamond bat that's, that's produced by Red Rock Biologics is something that everyone should do. They get the shot and then get the booster shot. Um, we, we vaccinated all of our dogs every year. Um, we used to have a rattlesnake that we did the snake avoidance with. And, um, um, what I saw is there was a small percentage of dogs, maybe shoot, uh, I'm going to say uh, 5% on the high end, probably more realistically 3%, that you could do the snake aversion. And it was a once-in-a-lifetime deal. It, it was fixed, uh, point made, point taken. Um, probably uh, 85% uh of, of the dogs that we saw. It's something that needed to be done at least once a year. Um, maybe, maybe if you're in a high snake concentration area, maybe, maybe every six months. And then there is a small percentage of dogs that doc, I think you could do it every day and they wouldn't figure it out. Um, so I think for the vast majority, uh, it's something to try annually. And if you see two or three years later that it's just not necessary, your dog will tell you that. I've been very fortunate. Uh, again, my my setters are number one, they're very sensitive to stimulation, and uh, number two, that when they were snake broke, it seems to have been a, a good brand. Uh, they, but as you said, they still have an opportunity to run over a snake that they couldn't smell. So the, between the snake, ver- snake avoidance as well as the uh, snake vaccination for a good one-two punch on that. Uh, in a similar vein, Ronnie, and you, you see it certainly across western te- West Texas. I've been up in Montana the once and ran into one. That was the porcupines. The, the, has anybody ever used snake avoidance? techniques for porcupines well I, I i don't know um i don't know if they if they have um we spent a number of years in uh, or i shouldn't say that we would go for 30 days at a time uh probably the last 12 years um and take um, dogs up there first year dogs and make that transition from pin birds to wild birds and um golly you know you would hear some of those guys say, I think my dog gets mad at them. And I'm like, oh, come on. You know, <laughs> there are some of those dogs that uh, 
those repetitive uh, offenders that I swear would bite harder um, each and every encounter that they had uh, to where it makes you think, <laughs> are they really getting mad at them? It is, uh, it is a real, real hard off game. Uh, that and armadillos, um, a real hard off game to break a dog from because they can catch them. Um, but uh, I, I don't know if there's anyone doing any aversion. I don't, I don't mind uh, occasional armadillo, but boy, porcupines, if it's a bad situation, bad case, it's fine. I can actually ruin your hunt, and, and I'm always reminded, and I'm going to have to pick at your pointers because of the breeds that I've seen, they seem to be more repeat offenders as you come. I had a, one of my former board members who had a dog that I think he'd been in like five, and it was just like the dog's rationalization was, well, you got a lucky punch in on me last time, but by golly, I'm going to get you this time. And uh, anyway, that's uh, have you a pair of pliers, and uh, hopefully you can get close enough to a vet if you have to get to a situation that to, uh, not enough to get to the spines of that that can really ruin the hunt. Um, moving forward, Ronnie, you're a professional dog trainer, so uh, you've got a a personal, I, mean, I don't mean bias in a bad way, but you're going to fall probably on one side of this. But for the guy that's got, again, he's he's got a pup. He's got him a German short hair pup. It's eight months old, and he doesn't know whether to do it yourself or go right to the trainer. I'm sure there are seminars, workshops, DVDs, books, everything out there. What would you tell that individual? Well, you know, I think it, it depends on 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 it if he can think like a dog and, and not come at it with this this anthropomorphism that that we're we're seeing so much of, you know. Um and, and in that in, in those folks um defense, if you've only been around people, you didn't grow up around animals, it seems like the the, the people that grew up around um livestock uh, really learn animal behavior because you learn when you go to move those animals, you know, what speed, what angle gets um, a certain reaction. And, and they just learn to watch and read animals. But if you weren't fortunate to grow up and, and you only have a relationships with people to base your relationship with your dog, uh, you certainly need to go to a professional trainer and then make sure that that trainer shows you how he put him together um, and how to put him back together because he's not going to stay together uh, unless you keep him together. Um, if you've got, you know, if you have access to birds and you have access to a place to train um, and you have a good understanding uh, of, of animal behavior um, and you have the time, then um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, for that person could probably work his own dog uh, and be very, uh, very happy. Um, I do think that you can get more polish uh, from a dog that's been professionally trained um, because the lines, the lines aren't blurred with living with your dog or going to the field. It's, it's, it's a business transaction. It's, it's all business. And along that line, then what would you say are some, again, I, I'm, asking this from the standpoint of somebody that's 
says, all right, I'm convinced I don't have the time or the patience to do it myself, and I'm, I'm looking for a good trainer. What what traits or what qualities would you look for to recommend a trainer? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I think with, with the internet now, it makes that a lot easier. Um, it's, it's easy to find out, um, anything about anyone on the internet. So, uh, that, that might be some place that I would start, um, and, and talk to the trainer. Um, how does he treat you? You know, does he treat you like a human being? Um, you know, if you tell him that this is your first bird dog, does he have empathy? Does you know what I mean? Does he does he does he take care of you in that initial conversation? You know, what's um, what's his integrity? What's he made of? Is he a good person? Then he's probably going to be a good trainer. You kept using the pronoun he. I know there's some uh, female dog trainers out there too, and, and I kind of lean when I'm hiring interns or technicians at the research range, I often kind of a little bit biased towards females because I think they're a little bit more patient when we're doing things like checking nest, bob whites, a little more careful. I don't know how that extends to the bird dog world, if it does, but uh, certainly there's a fair contingent of female trainers out there. For, uh, well, that's right. And, 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 and I didn't, I, I didn't mean that. I did say he, you know, my wife and I are the, are the, are the two trainers here. Um, and she is out there with me every day. Everybody thinks that, that Ronnie Smith or Ronnie Smith Kennels is the trainer. And that's, that's not the truth. It is, it is me and Susanna every day. And she is a wonderful trainer. Well, again, Tyler and I said hello. I want to, Move back a little bit, uh, getting here towards the end of the podcast. You mentioned steady to wing and steady to shot. Just for me and and maybe some uh, more rookies, uh, exactly what do you mean by those phrases? And think, there's, is there a steady to wing, steady to shot, it's steady to flush, or is there another one I've missed somewhere? Oh, you're right. <laughs> you know, it, it is. <laughs> there, um, that. You talk to different dog trainers, and in in that each one of those phrases will mean something different. Like you ask half a dozen dog trainers what a started dog is, and you'll get half a dozen different definitions. Um, so I, maybe maybe I won't use the. There, there's not a standard, I guess, is where I'm going. Um, so there is uh, there are dogs that point and and release on the flush. And that is the majority of dogs across the country. There are dogs that are trained to point, stand through the flush, and release on the gun. Basically, you can train your dog to do whatever you want. Um, there are dogs that stand, that point, stand through the flush, stand through the gun, um, can release on deadfall, or stand through the deadfall, steady wing shot and deadfall. Um, so, uh, the, what we like to do is we like to train all of our gun dogs, what we call um, steady through wing, and then they release on the gun. And the reason is because it, it gives you a point of reference. It, it kind of gives you a baseline. So uh, back up a little. The more chase that you take out of the equation, the more it affects your retrieve. 
Okay. So those, and I contradict everything I say, but, but, but the majority of those dogs that are stated wing shot in deadfall, and, and people think that if they're not stated wing shot in deadfall, then they're not finished. And that's not true. That's just another level of training. It does not define whether they're finished or not. It's just another level of training. But those dogs, unless they're, again, a, a genetically predisposed good retriever, natural retriever, the majority of those dogs have to be force-fetched to retrieve or trained to retrieve because you have taken the prey chase out of the equation. Those, those dogs that, that go on the flush uh, are, uh, I think, probably that, that, that way lends itself better to have a dog retrieve for you. But the reason that we go to the second level is because, um, again, it gives you a point of reference. It gives you a baseline. Um, they, they can't move if a bird gets up. So let's say, for example, a dog goes behind a plum thicket and it's kind of tight in there and you see birds come out the other end. Um, with, even with our GPS collars now, um, you wouldn't have to see your dog. If he didn't stop, with your two and a half second refresh rate, you could push the button with our format and just stop him. So when you walk in there, everything is in order. Where the first, if they go on the flush, you can't fix that if you're not there to see it. And you can have a runaway. Um, and the second, being steady through the through the, through wing and releasing on the gun, um, it. It, it's only about a two-second delay in that prey chase, and we find uh, that the majority uh, of the dogs that we train um, are, are good retrievers. Um, it, it does not take the chase completely out of the equation. That's a good point. Uh, kind of winding down here, running, and you mentioned the fact earlier in the podcast that uh, you're, you're uh, retiring from guiding. I'm sure you've guided a thousand or more hunters in your career. And I'm going to ask you, what are some of the common oops, uh, safety hazards, mistakes? What, what are some of the kind of things that make you cringe when you're walking in uh, alongside or behind two or three hunters on the flush? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think, uh, first of all, um, um, you know, I, I like in a quail hunting sit well. I like in an upland hunting situation. Um, uh, let, let me let me define that even more. Let's 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 put that to quail hunting. Maybe uh, Hungarian partridge, sharp tail grouse, chickens. Um, in that situation, uh, boy, if you're walking with that gun broke over on your shoulder, um, you're you're going to pick your head up and you're going to feel small in this big country that you're walking in you're going to be able to decompress and uh you're going to enjoy yourself more and you're certainly going to be safe when your dog goes on point you have plenty of time to load that gun walk up there um and, and harvest some birds um so so i like that uh walking with the safety on if if you're not don't have a break open gun or over and under or side to side uh, keep your safety on in in the muzzle watch where that muzzle's pointed um and and know know your shooting zone um that uh that that's always you know when and, and if you're running your dogs or 
or, or you have your dogs out there if you're guiding. If you have a dog that's, uh, that's honoring by sight and he's off a piece, point him out. Make, make, make your, your buddies that you're hunting or your clients that you're hunting. Let them know where he is because when that bird gets up and they're focused to the point that they can sex that bird or see his eyes blink, it, they're not going to see that. They're not going to, as they're swinging through, they're not going to see that dog that's lateral over there 70 yards or whatever he is. So, um, again, first and foremost, I think it's mindset. If you can just break that gun open and relax and walk that country and smell that air and, and watch those dogs, and that's really what it's about. Um, and uh, and then watch your gun where you point your gun. Um, know your shooting zone and carry that gun to safety on. Practice, um, practice that. You know, we used to do that a lot when I was a kid. But I'm not going to say dry firing, but I mean it was just a that was a thing. People grab guns and they'd work on that muscle memory. You know, you'd you'd hold that gun and you'd pull it up there and flip that safety and point it at some object. Um, and, and that doesn't happen anymore. Um, but I think it's something that could be practiced safely, like it used to be. Well, as a good friend of mine, I'm podcasting Paul Melton. Uh, reminds us that, that his dad told him quail hunting with people you don't know is more hunt, is more dangerous than hunting tigers with a blank and spear. And uh, he's exactly right. And so when you take somebody, I'm oftentimes taking youth, 13, 15 year old youth. So I'm just like, I'm crazy. But I've had fewer safety infractions dying with 13, 14, 15 year old youngsters as I have with 80 plus year old men. Well, you know, that's, that, that's right. I would have people say, man, I bet those, the, the first time hunters are scary. And I'm like, I've always said, no, they, they weren't, you know, they were when, when in doubt they wouldn't shoot. I said, the guys that scared me were guys like me, you know, guys that would make a shot. And they knew they weren't going to hit you, but you, you probably shouldn't taken that shot. Um, those are the guys that scared me. And, and I'll say too, and, and um, I see it all the time. Guy will take his his wife out hunting, or take his his son or his daughter out hunting, and and um and they stick them right in the middle. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's not the best place to be. Uh, you are handcuffed. You're right in the middle. You're nervous. If you want to really do somebody a favor, put them on the left or the right side. Give them give them that zone on the corner on the on the left or right side. Uh, I, I have seen it over and over and over. They will be more relaxed. Um, they will connect quicker um, than being funneled through that middle right by that dog. That's a great point. And I'm going to end this part on safety by saying I developed a list of about 12 safety rules for quail hunters that I, if I'm guiding a group or on my lease on the wall of my cabin in the lease, whatever, that's posted up there where everybody can see, and I force them uh, to read through those with me, and we kind of walk through what some of those situations are about approaching a dog with a shotgun in the ready position kind of thing. So if any of you be interested in that, uh, email me at drollins at quailresearch.org, drollins at quailresearch.org, and I'd be happy to send you a copy of that for you to share with your hunting buddies as well. Last thing I want to ask you, Ronnie, and, and I, 
maybe I ought to apologize because this wasn't on my list of talking points with you. I just thought about it earlier today. But it's a common um, discussion among honey circles. What do you, in your opinion, what is the origin of scent? What are the dogs actually smelling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody knows. Um, you know, I, and I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's it. I said, you know, in your opinion, so, uh, yeah, maybe you can't yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's as you've seen it. There, there are those days, and and, and you get maybe one a season that that uh, you your dogs can smell everything. I mean, it, it's unbelievable, um, and they're few and far between. But I'll tell you what, um, you know, I my uncle Bilmer thinks that. Um, that the dog, the dogs smell the breath of the quail. Okay. And, um, the only, and I've thought about this a lot. Uh, and, and the only thing that I can, um, the reason I think that that may be valid is because, uh, a dog, a dog can differentiate between a live bird and a dead bird. And, and how else would they? That's right. I, I had that same discussion with Delmer 20 years or more ago, and we both agreed that halitosis, what I call it, bad breath. And, and I would speculate, you know, sometimes if you've got one bird away from a cubby, whether or not he's trying to distract you or that's just the way it happened, I'm not trying to say that. But it seems like that is the easiest bird to track, in my opinion. And I think there's our stress hormones, speculation on my part, there are stress hormones that are in that dog's breath. I'm sorry, in that bird's breath that that dog can cue in on. And obviously there are probably other olfactory cues in the literature that will tell you it's the methane gas produced by the sloughing of epithelial cells off the bird's feet. But I don't buy that because at 10 degrees, I don't think there's going to be much methane production going on. And if that bird's no. breathing, it just... I agree 100%. You know, what we would notice when we would start um, start a season guiding in Texas and we had a good bird year, um, we had a hard time um, finding those 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 first-year birds. They, uh, they'd stand right there and watch you drive by them or, or, or watch you, your dog walk by them. Heck, I've seen a dog run through a cubby and the birds popped up about two foot and went back down and sat right there. But the more that we chaffed those birds, the easier they became to find. Um, and I, I agree with that. I think stress um, is, a, is a huge factor. And, and talking about the feet, um, I don't buy that either. I think that's cover. If you've got running birds and you've got cover, they, they'll leave, they'll brush that grass and leave sin. And, and if sending conditions are reasonable, you can find them. But you start working some of the desert birds where there's not a lot of cover, and they are very hard to follow. One last question. This has always intrigued me, and again, I ask you, Uncle Demmer, his thought on it. Um, but I'm going to tell you what he said until you get your opinion. And that is, and my dogs run most of the year with me. I mean, I'm not saying I take them out here in July all the time. They're with me a lot. There's opportunity to come across nesting birds, but they have never, in 35 years of running dogs, they have never pointed a hen on a nest. Have you ever seen one do that? No, I haven't. Um, you know, I would see 
when we had an early spring in, in South Texas, like maybe the 15th of, of, uh, of, of uh, February, those birds would start pairing off. And, and those birds, um, their, their feathers were, were lighter, were drier, were fluffier. Um, and, and that's about the time that, uh, man, dogs just couldn't smell them. Mother Nature was taking care of them. Uh, again, this is speculation on my part, but I mean, there is an adaptation for the evolutionary adaptation of a bird uh, sitting on the nest. It doesn't want to become available olfactorily speaking. And so they slow their, their respiration down almost just a torture at times. So they're slowing that, that inspiration to expiration, which again, if they're indeed keying in on the breath, which we, we seem to think they are. And then I'll go further to say that if a bird's eating insects, to me, the easiest birds to corner in late January and February when they're eating a lot of greens, I think that must put off a little bit more odor or whatever. But uh, when they're eating insects during the summer, because, again, they're, they're uh, incubating and raising brood, they seem to just be uh, scentless, in my opinion, during that time. Mm-hmm. Well, Ronnie, is there anything? I, I know that there's uh, there's various things on the internet out there, videos, and workshops, and uh, seminars, and public podcasts, and lots of other things out there. Are there any that uh, you think uh, that you would put your stamp of endorsement, other than your own, of course? But uh, are, there, are there any things that uh, our average listener might want to check out? Uh, you know, I'll, there's a there's a, a book. Um, golly, I think it was the name of it was Understanding Your Dog's Mind or Understanding the Dog's Not Mind by Bruce Fogel, um, written many years ago. And um, I think for just understanding, um, reading about dog behavior, uh, trying to understand the, the animal that's living in your home, that that was a very beneficial. Uh, uh, but, you know, there are a lot of ways to train dogs. Ours is not the only one. And in, in, in a lot of the ways that work, um, I would just encourage people to do their homework, um, see what format it is that they think is complete and, uh, and they understand. Um, and, uh, that would probably be the best plan of attack. Well, again, Ronnie, we appreciate you taking this hour for our listeners and, uh, I look forward to crossing paths again with you hopefully getting you out there to the research ranch you know we started a new study last year kind of a remake of what clay sis and them used to do down in auburn about uh, what percentage of the radio collar birds that are available to the bird dog do, do various dogs find and so we just started that last year and it wasn't a good year hopefully we'll have a little better season this year and we'll, we'll be wanting to build our uh, sample size up with that and trying different dogs and so forth so if you find yourself going through West Texas, well, give me a holler, and maybe we can work you into the rotation there. Yes, sir. And with that, Jerry, I'm going to pass it back to you in the studio. Again, um, many of us here in West Texas, uh, in the Rolling Plains at least, got a decent rain last night, and hopefully we've, we've broken that La Nina cycle that really had us at bay it's during the first half of May. And looking forward to cooler and, and wetter times and a longer nesting season because we're going to need all the help we can get to, to come back and, and have a decent year this year. But hopefully we've made a step in the right direction. So with that, Gary, I'm signing off and turning it back to you in the studio, and we'll talk to you next month. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Ronnie Smith Jr., for your wonderful insights and knowledge. For more information about Ronnie Smith Kennels, go to the website ronniesmithkennels.com. We hope you enjoyed this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. Previous episodes of our podcast can be found at the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. There you'll find also great information on research projects, resources, and much more. I'm Gary Joyner. We appreciate you spending time with us. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.